Okay, we are reading from Luke 11, verse 14 to 28. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who'd been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Well, morning. Good to see you. Uh, Daniel, if you want a lunch, you're welcome at our house. If you don't get any at yours, um, if you want a couch, you can sleep on ours too. One of my favorite stories told by my father-in-law is about himself. It concerns a man called Frank Batten. My father-in-law is a Christian minister. He's been a Christian minister for many, many decades. But there was a man in his early ministry when he lived in Cardiff who professed faith. He became a, became a Christian, so he said. He was an alcoholic. He'd been an alcoholic for many years. He was a man who had violence in his past. But my father-in-law, John Tyndall, befriended him. He took him to Christian meetings for about a year. He took him to hear the great preachers of the day, including, no less, the Reverend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He read Christian books with him. They did a one-to-one together. They prayed together. All was going well for about a year. But underneath the veneer of change, Frank was struggling. There was a gap between what he knew and what he understood about Jesus and the gospel, the good news, and the struggles that he was facing from his past and from within. There was the time at one o'clock in the morning when John got the phone call to give him a lift home because he was drunk and he'd been out in a nightclub. There was another time when he was drunk drunk again and he wanted a roof over his head and so he, uh, with the uh, letter flap open in his hand, for about an hour he shouted, asking for a room for the night when John was out but Pauline was in and she was afraid. Then there was the most famous time of all, when good old Frank Batten desperately wanted somewhere to sleep for the night. He'd had a skin fall, he'd been down to the pub and he was knocking and knocking harder and harder at one of the patio doors in their home. Knocking wasn't 
uh, getting the desired outcome. And so he took a flower pot in his hand and he threw it against the window and through the window and the flower pot exploded on the kitchen table. John woke up as Frank was entering the property through the patio door and shortly sent him back out the patio door with his fist to his face. Frank rejoiced in telling all his friends how the local Methodist minister had sent him packing with his knuckles. Both of them, by the way, just to end the story, found themselves at A&E that night. John, being compassionate and a Christian minister, thought he should take him back and get the treatment that he needed, but the damage was already done. Frank thought he had become a Christian, but he was struggling within. And this passage, and the reason I tell you that story is not to get my father-in-law into trouble, but because this passage is all about change. Luke 11, verses 14 down to 28, is all about the power to change. Many, many people have scratched their heads over this passage. It's difficult, it's complex. There is an account of a demon in there, and you think, has this got any place in the 21st century? But rather than being perplexing, I think this passage is immensely practical because it tells us about the power to change. How do people change? And I think Jesus says in these verses three things. Power, the reality of power in the world. There's a vacuum in our own hearts. And then thirdly, we can see later in the passage about true possession. Okay, so it's power, a vacuum, and true possession. Only if we come to know Jesus can we know thorough, deep, lasting, eternal change. We still struggle with sin, but knowing Jesus and Jesus alone is the power to change. Let's take a look at these three things. Verse 14. First of all, the types of power in the world. Verse 14. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Now, you should be thinking now, wait a minute, a demon, really? Yes, really. It says, verse 14, that the Lord Jesus was confronted with a demon and he cast him out. Can Jesus really cast out demons? Are there such things as demons in the world? And to both of those realities, the Bible says yes. There is more to this world than what we see and taste and feel and touch. There is a spiritual realm, a, a third dimension, And Jesus is demonstrating his power over evil spirits, as he's done throughout the Gospels. You may be thinking, hang on, this is such a pre-scientific era. Really, in the modern world, this would be explained by uh, mental illness, or medication would rid this person who's struggling with demon possession. But that's not true. If you were to read the Gospels from front to back, you would see Jesus never mixes the categories that we define people into. He never confuses people who are unwell, people who are sad, and with those who are possessed by evil spirits. He doesn't treat a sick person as if they're demon-possessed. But Jesus' purpose here is not just to teach us about what demon possession is or to explain how to perform an exorcism. That's not why this passage is here. Because the reality of this passage is that there is power at work. And Jesus says that in verse 15. Not only is there more to this world than what we can see, taste, and touch, there is the reality of the spiritual realm that Jesus and Jesus alone has authority and power over. 
But verse 15, notice what the challenge really is. Some of them said, he casts out demons. This is the Pharisees speaking. He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. These religious leaders are really, really upset with what Jesus is doing. And they're throwing mud at his character and saying the only reason he can do that is because he himself is possessed by the devil. And Jesus is very subtle but very direct. He's not seeking to be clever, but he's seeking to be very truthful and he shows the power that's on display in the world. What do I mean? Well, look at verse 19. Jesus doesn't just defend himself, but he he holds up the mirror to say, if you say that about me, then how do your people, how do your fellow Pharisees, who also have power to exercise demons, to deliver people, how do they do it? Verse 19, if I cast out demons only by the power of Beelzebub or the devil, how do your followers cast them out? What Jesus is doing as he holds up this mirror is to say, we know that your followers also cast out demons. So if I do it by the power of Beelzebub, how do your followers do it? If we went and spent some time looking at the writings of Josephus, the first century historian, we know for sure that the Pharisees had power. They had power to change people's lives. They had power to deliver people from demons, to deliver people from their problems. And so what Jesus is doing is something very, very intentional. He's saying that there is power in the world for people to change. It's not just Christian or religious power. It's not just power from God. There is power in the world that enables people to change. What do I mean? Just recently I was reading a book on management theory. I really know I'd have a good time. It told the story of Mr. Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson was an alcoholic. He'd suffered from alcoholism for about two decades. He'd just been to the doctors and he'd been given six months to live. This is back in 1935. He'd sought help from the experts but got no help. And the doctors had given him such a a wake-up call that he was determined to change. But he knew he couldn't change himself. And so what Bill Wilson did was to see, I know what I can do. I can get help from the experts. And who are the experts? My fellow addicts. I mean, addicts are so clever, whether it's addicted to drugs or drink or pornography or something else. There's always a way around the control systems that are put in place. But what Bill Wilson did that was so revolutionary was he unlocked the power of the fellow addicts and he set up Alcoholics Anonymous. He set up the 12-point strategy of getting help and accountability from one another. You see, there's power in the world, says Jesus. The Pharisees, you've got power to deliver people from demonic possession. There's power in the world, whether it be from group therapy, whether it be from religious or worldviews that are different from ours, whether it be from uh, philosophical convictions that are different from ours. People change in the world, not just through the power of God, Jesus is saying. Any religion, any philosophy, any theory, any group of people who have enough determination, who have enough motivation, can change. You don't like the way you look, you go and run. You don't like the way you think, you go and get help from a counsellor. It doesn't have to be under the power of God, says Jesus Christ, for people to change, for people to be delivered. But, says Jesus, if you want to know the reality of lasting power, 
If you want to know lasting and complete transformation and change, then only the power of God will do that. The world's power cannot enable lasting change and transformation. Worldly power has power. But when you come to Christianity, you never come to Christianity thinking, Christianity is true because it works. That's not true. Christianity works because it's true. And there's all the difference in the world. It's not true because it works. It works because it's true, says Jesus. And there is power in the world that Jesus Christ comes and acknowledges. You think it's by the power of the devil that I cast out demons? If that's true, verse 19, then how do you do it? But it's not. But there's power in the world. That's the first thing that Jesus says in this passage. There are many sources of power for helping people with their problems in the world. The second thing from verse 24 to 26 is about the vacuum we have in our own hearts. There's power in the world but there's vacuum in our own hearts. Verses 24 to 26 is strange. There's no other word for it. Let's read it again. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So there's been a deliverance, there's been liberation, there's been freedom and transformation, you could say. But notice what happens next. When the evil spirit returns, it's worse than before. There are seven more spirits brought along with him to have a party, to cause havoc, to cause disarray and destruction. And what's Jesus saying again? It's possible, I think Jesus is saying, for you to put your life in order, to look like Frank Batten, that everything on the outside is okay. You are making progress in your walk with Jesus. You are changing your world. So you're a person of more self-control, more emotional well-being, more compassion and tenderness. There is change happening and transformation on the outside. And yet, says Jesus, it's possible to look like that but actually, that's just window dressing. Your heart is just the same. It's just as hard. There's been no change within. I mean, we all know. You go down to the beach, right? You go down to the beach with your kids. You're digging a sandcastle. And the next day you come, the sandcastle is gone. You know the reality that if you've tidied up that cupboard that no one likes to go and tidy up, the cupboard under the stairs, there's transformation. If you don't fill it with something else, something else fills it almost immediately. And what is happening here is Jesus is saying, you can try and change on the outside, but if you don't fill within, there is a vacuum that will be filled by something else. You can put your life in order, but if it's not put in order by the Spirit of God, well, it would be just as worse than before. You don't have to be a Christian to get your marriage back on track when it's struggling. You don't have to be a Christian to overcome your struggle with alcohol. You don't have to be a Christian to get your emotions in check when they've dominated you. But if you do not know the reality of the Spirit of God transforming your heart, if you don't feel that vacuum that there is in, your, in the human heart and in the human spirit and soul, then it'll be just as worse than before. Jesus is saying, if you turn to anybody but to me, then it'll be worse than before. 
because nature, as Augustine said, nature abhors, it hates a vacuum. Space always has to be filled. That's what verses 24 to 26 say. You remove some plants from your garden. I speak from personal experience. You clear out the weeds. And what happens? If you don't plant something back there, more weeds come. It's the reality of the human heart that the soul hates a vacuum too. And so Jesus comes along and says in verses 24 to 26, the only way to get a power to change is to give yourself to something or someone. It's to be possessed by someone or something. You don't get power in an abstract way to change. You only get power to change because you have a motivation that you want to change. And the power from within, from the Spirit of God. You need to give yourself to something or someone. And Jesus says, unless it's me, unless it's me you give yourself to, you'll find yourself worse off than before. There was a famous Scottish preacher called Thomas Chalmers. He was born at the late 18th century and into the 19th century. He started to minister and he wrote a very famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of New Affections. It's a really catchy title. He says this, Rarely do our habits and flaws disappear through reasoning or mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be disposed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Let me tell you about a friend of mine I met a few years ago who had lost the fight in the battle against pornography. His marriage was under tremendous strain. Showed that when they came to visit me, his husband and wife, they, were, they couldn't sit further apart on the sofa, put it that way. Pornography and the need to see more and more perverse sexual images were just dominating his life. It filled his hard drive. It consumed his time and waking hours, you could say. Now, the answer this man's struggles was not just to stop watching what he shouldn't be. It wasn't just to stop clicking to see what he wanted to see. It wasn't just to install software that he needed to. All those are appropriate. What this man needed to see was true beauty. What this man needed to see, his heart needed to be gripped with a new passion for purity and holiness as well as those practical things as well. His heart needed to be gripped by new affections, not for something that's temporary and passing and an illusion. His heart needed new affections for true beauty and for God. That's an extreme example. What about you, Christian friend? The temptation there is just to fill our diary, fill my diary with stuff, to be busy, to look uh, active in the Christian life, to say how much we've read and studied, or to pursue the next mystical or spiritual experience, or to be involved with social action because we want to help. But all the change is out there and it's just a mirage because there's been no change within. You can do all those things and they're good things on the whole, but there can be no change within. And Jesus is saying, verses 24 to 26, there is a vacuum in your heart. As the pop group Extreme once sung, there is a hole in your heart, and it can only be filled by me, says Jesus.
There's no change on the inside. But this passage is saying that, friends, God wants our hearts before he wants anything else. He doesn't want us to be busy people. He doesn't want us to be active people until he's got our hearts. That's the key part of Christian discipleship. Has God got your heart? Or is there still a vacuum within, but on the outside all is well because we look busy? It's the challenge of these verses. There are lots of ways to solve your problems. There's power in the world. There's a vacuum in your hearts. But if you go to anything else other than Jesus to fill this void, to plug this vacuum, you'll be far worse off than ever before. That's what Jesus says in verses 24 to 26. This power, this vacuum, this void. And finally, Jesus tells us and teaches us about possession. Possession. Jesus says, I am the one, verses 20 and 25, I am the one who can bind the strong man. I'm the one with just the finger of God. This little phrase from Exodus and Deuteronomy, just the finger of God, I can defeat uh, the evil one. And I can do it thoroughly. I can liberate you completely. I can change you permanently. There's no relapses when my power comes into your life, says Jesus. It's transformation. Not just subtle, it's complete and it's lasting. Verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and he divides up the spoils. Just a finger is enough for the living God to liberate this man, verse 14, from the power and influence of the evil one. I can destroy anything that's binding you. And Jesus Christ did that at the cross. Here's a man, he's cleaned up his house, all is well, but he hadn't let Jesus move in. That's the difference. It was just window dressing. It was just presentation. There was a void in his heart. There was a vacuum. And because it was not filled with love for Christ, love for Jesus, and the power of God and the Spirit of God, it's empty. And when it's empty, anything can get in. It's a vacuum. And what Jesus is saying with this image of the strong man and the binding is, I think... It's not good enough just for us to give mental assent to truth. It's not good enough just to believe in God and who he is. It's not enough just to read material. It's not enough just to attend church or give to a Christian charity or organization. If you don't know me, if you're not possessed by me, you will be possessed by something else. You might say, hey, hang on, possession, that's a really strange word. Possession, I think exorcist, that's bad. Well, of course, possession can be a bad word. It can have bad connotations. It can be negative. You can think of being possessed by envy and greed. But possession can also be a good word. It can also be a good word. What does it mean for a Christian to be possessed by God? What does it mean for someone to let God possess you? It's not negative. It's very positive. Because when you're possessed by God, when you're possessed by God, Christ says, I'm the only one if I possess you. I will drive you absolutely sane. That's the difference between someone who's possessed by God and someone who's possessed by something else. Everything else leads to insanity. The sign that someone is possessed by God is they're completely sane. They're a person of weightiness and substance, a person of truth and love and compassion. So how, 
How is someone possessed by God? What does that mean? There's a negative and there's a positive, says the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. This is what it means to be transformed, to be possessed, to be controlled by, to belong to, to the living God. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes this, put off the old self, that's the negative, here's the positive, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new, put off the old, put on the new. That's transformation. That's change, not on the outside, but on the inside. You put off and you put on. This is what it means to belong to God. This is what it means to know God. Not externally, but personally, intimately, relationally. Jesus is saying, this is what needs to imbibe your heart. This is what needs to motivate your spirit and your actions. You put off and you put on. Don't rejoice in power. Many people in the world get driven by power. They think that power will be the answer to changing their lives. But continually rejoice in who you are in Jesus. That's what Jesus Christ says. Look at Luke 10 verse 17. Jesus has sent out the 72 people. They've gone out into the world. They return to him and they rejoice They rejoice at their power. We can cast out demons with your power, say the disciples as they return to the master. Even the demons are subject to us, they say. And Jesus is very, very worried about them. Down at verse 20 of chapter 10. Jesus says, Rejoice not that the demons are subject to your name, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is something to really rejoice about. Not about power, not about self-control, not that your uh, discipleship career is on the up. What you've really got to rejoice about is that I know you, that your names are written in heaven. Don't relish power, it can corrupt you. Don't relish the fame that you can get by driving out demons. Here's something to really rejoice in, that your names are written in the book of heaven. You go to the world and the world will say you rejoice in the power. Look at what you can do. Look at what you can do with the resources and the money that you've been entrusted with. And Jesus is very worried. And he says, no, don't rejoice in the, pow- in the power that you've been given the way the world does. Here's something to really be thankful to God for, that your names are written in heaven. Relish that truth. Know that reality. Let that truth inflame the affections of your own heart, that they would drive out anything else. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the joy of knowing me and what I've done for you. No void in your heart. I stand before the Father, says Jesus Christ. Your names are written on a precious stone in my heart. I'm your advocate. I love you. God looks at you the way he looks on me and he loves us both. God loves you as he loves me and as a result he's committed to you. That is transformative. That is power. That's a truth that won't change. Jesus says this is what you're to rejoice in. Not the power that God has given to you. Not your status negatively. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Think on that. Relish on that. Think about the reality that one day all the struggles we face will be driven away. They will end. 
all suffering will cease, all unruliness and the hurts of our hearts, all the things that we struggle with will be no more. And look forward to that day. Rejoice in this, not in the power that you've been given, not in the status that you think you've got in the world, but rejoice at who you are in me, says Jesus Christ. Friends, the reason I don't live the life that I should be living as a Christian because I do not bring this truth to bear in my own life. I rejoice in feedback. I rejoice in worldly success. I rejoice in external things that can change like shifting shadows. But Jesus says, here is something to really get your teeth into, to settle on. Here is a weight and a ballast for your own spirit, no matter what the week or the world throws at you. Here's something to really rejoice in. Here's something to fill the void that we all feel. It's not a power from the world that can change, but it's change that won't last. This is something that can drive out expulsively old affections and give you new affections. What do I mean? What does Jesus say? Rejoice not in this power. Don't rejoice in this and this and this. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to be a people who are conditioned by the world and who want to have our status and enjoyment and we want to be content and rejoice in external things like a good payday, like children who are successful, like children who are well behaved, like a retirement pot that's growing beyond our wildest dreams. We can be so worldly. Father, please forgive me in that regard. And help me and my brothers and sisters here to rejoice in a truth that will never change. That if we are yours, our names are written in the book of heaven. And that means we're eternally safe and secure. Help us please to own this truth that you and you alone have power to change people. Help us to recognize that there are many powers in the world where people do look like they're changing where they do have contentment from different religions in the world, from different worldviews, from philosophical systems, even from power from within, their own determination, they can change. But it's not lasting change. And it's not change on the inside. And it's not change that really matters ultimately. But Father, thank you for Jesus. And because Jesus died, the Spirit of God was sent. And thank you that he's at work in our hearts to give us more and more new affections to drive out the old and help us to put on the new. And I pray that we would know that abundantly in this place and in our lives and in our hearts in the months and days ahead. Amen.